We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's simple truth moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. This morning, we are going to discuss the biblical definition of the words eternal life. Uh wrote a book back in 2016, which was entitled The Blueprint. And the theme of The Blueprint basically was to ask the question, is the Bible story a circular, cyclical Jewish experience, or is it a linear Greek-Western paradigm? And the reason I wrote that book back in 2016 was that I had noticed that there was a, almost a different way of looking at Scripture from the perspective of two different cultures. And I started to ask some questions along the line of, well, uh, is this basically a Jewish constructed contextual format, or is it a Gentile, Greek, Western, Roman type of format? The reason I was asking that question is that my background is I had 16 years of formal Roman Catholic education, uh, beginning from grammar school to high school to undergraduate years of college, uh, only to later when I got saved at about age 27, 28, um, I came into the the Protestant Reformation experience when I came back to the Lord, and um, I have now been 46 years, 47 years, um, a Protestant, and with those two backgrounds, I was noticing that contextually, I kept looking at the question, why are we not talking about the first two-thirds of a book called the Holy Bible? If I had gone up to an individual and shared that particular book and made the comment, what a wonderful, life-changing book this was, and then in the same sentences, by the way, don't bother reading the first two-thirds of that book, I think I would get an expression of 
somewhat shock and dismay from the individual to whom I just handed the book, asking the question, why would I not read the first two-thirds? But that's pretty much what we Western, linear, Greek, Roman uh, folks do, and I wanted to know why. And so uh, I was involved with, I later became a, uh, I went to Bible school and um, got my my credential, my bachelor's of theology, uh, magna cum laude, and um, I did all this while rec- working a regular job. Uh, at the time, I was a former attorney. I'd become a administrative law judge, and um, my outreach ministry during all this of going to school and working full-time, raising a family, uh, I got involved with jail ministry. And in the experience of being a jail chaplain, they actually took me on because I was bilingual and they needed a Spanish-speaking jail chaplain uh, on Sunday evenings. So I got recruited. And it was a wonderful experience, um, life-changing in many ways. But what was frustrating about that particular aspect of doing ministry involved the fact that you do not have control how things flow when you're working in a uh, high-security prison or jail environment. So many times um, I would go and have a sermon or a teaching prepared that was going to last 45 minutes, 60 minutes, and um, oftentimes I would maybe get five or ten minutes into the sermon, and then there would be an interruption because of security concerns. And the, the frustration was I'm driving a long distance from my home to go to this particular um, security facility, particular high-security jail. And on the way, one ride home on a particular Sunday evening, I was praying to the Lord, and I just said, I said, Father, um, I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to waste my time, but um, I need something that would be able to stick with the inmates. Uh, sometimes I, I would see an inmate 12 or 16 times uh, over a series of Sundays. Other times I may only see him once. But I said, is there something you can give me that I might be able to deliver in five or ten minutes uh, if we're interrupted again by the sheriffs because of a security concern? And the father pretty much said, you could teach the whole entire Bible from beginning to end using just five words. And those five words all would begin with the letter R. And um, so that's the theme of the book that I wrote called The Blueprint. Uh, But the one thing that was added or requirement was God later, a couple of years later, told me, uh, you need to teach those five words beginning with the letter R uh, in the shape of a circle. And I did not understand that, but he was pretty emphatic about it. And so I would. I would teach it in the shape of a circle, and uh, we would go basically from Genesis through the book of Revelation, 
and um, many times the inmates would say, wow, um, what you're teaching in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis sounds a lot like the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. And uh, it was circular. And um, so after I began to teach that, I was, on one Sunday I was asked to be a substitute um, speaker at a local church, and the individual to whom I was giving my PowerPoint, etc., um, after I handed those materials off to them, uh, was getting back in my car, and that person was getting in back into their car, and the individual said, by the way, I just finished taking a course called Hooked on Hebrew, and um, did you know, and this is the lady coordinator who, who I just handed all of my materials off to. She said, did you know that Hebrew culture and language and thought patterns are all circular in nature? And I was literally in my car, and I got out, and I went over to where she was sitting in the front seat of her car, and I said, what did you just say? And she repeated it. And... It dawned on me, wait a minute, um, there's a reason that the Lord um, instructed me to teach those five words, beginning with the letter R, which would summarize the entire Bible story in a circular fashion. So, um, all that to say, this is just to kind of introduce you to one of the books that we're going to be looking at in this new show called Simple Truth Moments, and um, that is going to be a topic of another, um, another Sunday. But the reason I am laying that out now is that that book really challenged me to take a step back and look at the Scripture contextually from cultures and influence of language and influence of time zone, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I make reference to something being circular and Jewish contrasted with something linear and Western or Greek, um, that is the concept that's contained in the book, The Blueprint, um, which is available on our Simple Truth Ministries uh, website. So... The topic today is, what's the definition of eternal life? Now, using that takeoff point of Greek linear thinking versus uh, Hebrew or Jewish circular thinking, when I was a young parochial student in grammar school, I was instructed by the, the nuns and the priests in Catholic school that eternal life was an experience that was to be um, experienced in the future uh, at the time of death, and it was a relocational um, phenomenon going from earth over to heaven. And if I were fortunate enough to uh, be able to make it into heaven, um, that would be, by definition, a relocation and arriving at a target or a 
locational goal called heaven, and thus that would be eternal life because that's where I was going to spend eternity. Now, there wasn't much discussion um, about what was done after we arrived at uh, heaven, and even when I later on became a uh, reformational uh, Protestant, uh, I started looking into Scripture and getting much more familiar with the Scripture uh, because, again, in Catholic circumstances, we weren't encouraged to read the Bible. Uh, That was something that the priest would do and then explain to us. But in the Protestant experience, uh, we were very much encouraged to read the Bible. And I noticed that there wasn't a lot of discussion about what happens um, after we get to what was explained to me as eternal life going to heaven. So the definition that we're going to explore this morning is, what is the definition of eternal life according to Scripture? Now, when I was in the jail, I would, um, oftentimes I knew most of the inmates were uh, Spanish-speaking, and um, so most of them had a Catholic background, as did I, and I knew what they were taught, and I knew what I was taught, and um, so I would take uh, them to, we would hand out Bibles to them, and they were looking at John fourteen six. I would always take them there, and I would, I would play a um, somewhat of a trick on them because I wanted to catch them into an experience of how ingrained our teaching can be, even when we're looking eye to eye, word to word with the Scripture right in front of us. So usually I would use John fourteen six, and I would take him there, and I would say, okay, uh, I am the way, said Jesus. I am the truth, and I am the life. No one gets to, and here's where I would trick them by inserting a different word. I said, no one gets to heaven but by me. And most of the time they did not pick up on what had just happened, and they would be nodding in agreement. And I would... Um, oftentimes just put the Bible down on the desk in front of me, and um, I'd wait. And I'd see if anybody, if any of the students, there were about 45 guys in the multipurpose room who all had Bibles, and I'd just wait to see if anyone would pick up on what just happened. It took usually about three to five minutes after silence, and uh, the students were getting uh, uncomfortable because the teacher just wasn't talking anymore. So eventually a hand would go up in the back, and uh, there would be an inquiry, and they'd say, "Uh, Chaplain, my Bible does not say um, no one gets to heaven but by me. It says no one gets to the Father but by me. And I said, wow, let me take a look at my Bible. And sure enough, you know, of course, I was doing that in jest. And as I looked, I'd say, oh, my Bible says the same thing. No one gets to the Father except through me. And the reason I was trying to make that distinction was I wanted to ask them a question. Um, Would you live your life any differently if the target of the Judeo-Christian journey uh, was a place versus a formation of a relationship with your Heavenly Father? And, in fact, 
uh, oftentimes inmates would ask me that, what difference would it make? And I wouldn't give them an answer. I'd answer their question with another question. I said, let me ask you, Mr. Inmate. My job as a chaplain is to decrease the recidivism rate of this jail. And I am curious as to whether you, when you get out of this jail, would live your life any differently if you knew the goal or the target of the Judeo-Christian experience, the Judeo-Christian journey, was the reconciliation, the, re- the reformation of a uh, rebuilding of a relationship with your Heavenly Father as opposed to just having a transportational experience uh, when you die of going to another place called heaven. And the inmate that I asked that question to uh, waited about three to five minutes and was in heavy thought and finally responded and said, well, actually, it would make a difference as to what the goal or the target is. And I said, okay, um, why? Tell the class. They're all listening. They're all waiting. And he said, well, if the goal or the target of the Judeo-Christian experience was just to die die and go to a place, and that's called eternal life, Um, I just get a ticket, you know, I can go to an evangelical conference, or I can watch a Christian show on television and say the four spiritual laws and Romans 10, 9, and 10, and just, that's it, I get a ticket, and I'm done. Versus if the goal, as in John 14, 6 says, no one gets to the Father but through me, that means I have to give an accounting face-to-face with my div- to my divine Father on how I lived my life, the things I thought about, the things I said, the things I did or did not do. And I accordingly would live my life radically different. And there was a long silence in the room because everybody else was tracking what this inmate was saying. Because what we had just done was clarify something that we are taught because of our Western, Greek, Roman linear background of thinking of how the gospel developed after the Nicaea Creed in, uh, I think it was uh, A.D. 325, and after we disconnected from our Hebrew foundations, our Hebrew roots, and we went our own way through Constantine uh, appointing a pope, and then we had the Catholic Church, and then we had the Protestant Reformation several centuries later. And But when I was looking at the Bible, I would explain to them there were 66 books, and there are 40 authors. And I would ask them the question, of the 40 authors, how many of the 40 were, were Jewish or Hebrew? And they would, they would, if they knew, they would say, well, 39. I said, okay, well, and, or in some cases 40, because there's a debate as to whether Luke was really a Gentile or whether the Apostle Luke was a proselyte, um, being Jewish or coming over to being Jewish from being a Gentile status. But either way, even if it's, uh, even if it's 39 out of 40 authors, um, I would explain to the inmates, look, context, when we read Scripture, is everything. We have to understand the culture, what produced it. We have to understand the authors and who they were, what their background was. Um, and we have to understand all of that. And then I would tell them, you know, you know, Messiah— Jesus, the Savior, our Redeemer, by the way, I say, do you know he was Jewish? And, of course, 
most of these uh, inmates, being of Hispanic background, uh, grew up in the Catholic Church, as did I, and they, they were somewhat shocked and going, oh, man, <laughs> new, new revelation. All right. So one of the things that we would talk about is what is the definition of eternal life? So we were all taught eternal life is dying and going to a place. And, of course, we talked about the John fourteen six quote. And the next question was, well, if eternal life is not dying and going to a place called heaven, what is, where is the definition of eternal life? And we were still in the same book of John. And I'd say, well, let's flip over to John seventeen three. And when you look at John seventeen three, um, it basically says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. And I would ask them, when it talks about know, is that an intellectual you know, brain function of knowing about something or someone, or is the context know in more of a relational context from a heart standpoint? And knowing about something is very different than knowing someone relationally. But when they saw this definition of John 17, 3, it really made them sit up and notice and say, oh, so you're telling us that Scripture says that eternal life is not relocational, waiting to die after and go to heaven. It's really more relational, not relocational. And I answered them, that's exactly what I'm saying, because that's what Scripture says. And so... Um, if according to John seventeen three, eternal life is equal to knowing Father God and Jesus Christ, his Son, by means of a personal relationship, um, then all of a sudden, when we talk about why did Jesus come and what is this thing called eternal life, that brings on a whole different series of questions to say, oh my goodness, what was the goal? What is the goal? Well, we still stayed in the book of John, and we flipped over to John ten ten. And in John 10.10, 10, uh, there's Jesus actually explaining one of the purposes for which he came. And it, I'm just going to paraphrase it here. It basically says, um, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, summarizing John 10.10. 10. And if Jesus himself is using the words life to describe the goal, to describe the purpose for which he came to earth, and we see in John 14, 6, that there's a relationship that we are to reestablish and reconnect with, because in John 14, 6, he's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then in John 17, 3, we say, wow, eternal life, by definition, is that we are coming into a relationship of knowing the one true God, Father God, and his Son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent. That sent a lot of people into scratching their heads and saying, we need to dig into this more. We need to dig into this deeper. We need to figure out what it is as to why we're here <laughs> and who we are and what's, what's the point about this whole journey. So when you get, so when you get down to the... Uh, actual definition of what Scripture says about the goals of who we are and why we're here, 
and the goals are different than what we were taught in religious school or parochial school or in Sunday school at church, we have to stand back and start to ask some questions. Wow, if eternal life is a relational experience as opposed to a transportational experience, then what does that mean for me as a believer? What does that entail? What does that involve? What does that require? Is eternal life more of a who than a where? That changes everything. That changes everything. So I just want to leave you with this idea that um, God's goal in all of this is to establish our pathway to our divine destiny is that we experience eternal life relationally and establishing and maintaining a personal relationship with the one true God, that's the Father in this context, and with Jesus Christ, his Son, whom he sent, is by definition of Scripture eternal life. And I noticed that Jews, Messianic Jews, who believe that Jesus was the Messiah, reach God relationally. We Westerners, we Gentiles, Greek thinkers in generally, try to reach God with our minds, our brains, rationally. So on the other side of the break, we're going to take a look at other verses where eternal life uh, is defined and see if we can't extend our understanding and our questioning of what does the Scripture say about the definition, the explanation of the meaning of the words eternal life. I will see you on the other side of the break. Simple Truth Moments. This morning we are talking about the definition, the meaning of the words eternal life. You know, um, when we're out evangelizing, we use very typically a verse that just about everyone knows, and um, that is John 3.16. And um, you'll see it at football games. When you're watching a football game, there'll be somebody who has this big uh, size butcher paper, and they'll write on it, they write on it, uh, John 3.16, and then the words of the verse. And it seems like everyone knows this when we're out preaching the gospel, evangelizing, and taking the good news out to the unsaved. But we need to look at this in the context of what we just discussed in the first half hour. In John 3.16, notice the words here. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, using the definition of eternal life that we just finished in the last half hour, and basically saying, and okay, let's review that real quick. In John 17, 3, it says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we discussed that. We're not going to review that again. But 
basically know is relationally knowing, not knowing about uh, God just in a mental or intellectual way. But here we are using this um, verse of John 3.16, and I'm looking for it here in my... I have the New King James here, but I'm also using what they call the David Stern Complete Jewish Study Bible. And it's interesting to take a look at how he also describes it. And using the 3.16 of John in this Bible, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only and unique Son, that everyone who trusts in him may have eternal life instead of being utterly destroyed. So comparing that utterly destroyed in the complete Jewish Bible with the New King James, uh, it talks about should not perish versus utterly destroyed. So the two contrasts are uh, life versus perishing, or say, or life versus death, and uh, life versus being utterly destroyed. Now, notice places aren't even discussed here in John 3.16. It's just talking about um, eternal life in a, is it, how should I say this? Is it a relationship or is, a, is it a state of being? Um, when I was taught about eternal life being dying and going in a, in a future event, when I in the future died, I would go to a place called heaven. Um, that was basically describing a state of being. And um, that's what we said as Catholics. That was what even what I was taught when I became a Protestant uh, 40-some-odd years ago, 46 years ago. And um, it seems like the more you study the context of Scripture about what eternal life or everlasting life means, it's not talking so much about locations or places. It's talking about relationships. So, for example, in 3.16, uh, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, that's what the New King James says. But in the complete Jewish Bible, it says, So that everyone who puts their trust in him. Well, believing for a Greek or a Westerner can mean that you agree to certain mental facts and say, oh, okay, uh, X, Y, Z, or A, B, C, and you'll say, yeah, okay, I, I believe that, I think that. Because to the Greek or the Westerner, uh, the rational mind is what is most uh, prominent. But to the Middle Easterner, to the Hebrew, to the Jew, um, when you say believe, I notice that many times in the complete Jewish Bible by David Stern, when the word believe comes up, he substitutes another word in place of believe, and he puts another word called trust. It's one thing to believe a fact, to assent or agree to it. But when you say relationally, I trust someone, that brings a different dimension of experience, which now involves more of the heart rather than the brain. And I've also noticed that contrasting these uh, two scriptures, but also the two Bibles, most of the time when the word faith shows up in the New King James um, Bible, oftentimes in the complete Jewish Bible, instead of faith, it says, again, trust. So if eternal life is relationally knowing God, and that means that I am forming, I am allowing to be created in me a relationship according to the complete Jewish Bible, of trust, not just a, an agreement 
in my human mind of as to whether certain facts exist or not. So where is the other place that we find in Scripture that there's a definition for the word eternal life? And that is found in John chapter 12, and we'll go to the New King James first, and it says, and this is Jesus, I'll I'll go back to verse 49, just gets a little bit of context. It's Jesus is explaining, I, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Now notice in the next verse 50, so we're in John 12 now, verse 50. All right. And I know, says Jesus, the red letter edition, that his command is eternal life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me so, I speak. So now this introduces another concept of eternal life. So we are now saying that eternal life is not just about waiting for a future event and dying and then be transport, transported to another location, but now we're saying eternal life is not only relational, knowing God in a trusting sort of way, but also there's this other element that Jesus has now brought up in John twelve fifty that it has something to do with the Father's command. So I'm going to read this out of the Complete Jewish Study Bible from David Stern. I'll read the 49 and then 50 of uh, John 12. For I have not spoken on my own initiative, but the Father who sent me has given me a command, namely what to say and how to say it. And I know that his command is eternal life. And so what I say is simply what the Father has told me to say. Wow. So now we're saying eternal life is not only a relationship with the Godhead, both the Father and the Son whom he sent, but we're now also talking about there's a command factor to it. So what's the takeaway from this? Well, this verse and verses in twelve John 12, 49 through 51, they're simple, but they're profound. And here's the proposition. And this may sound very much like the way Moses used to talk in the book of Deuteronomy when he was addressing the Jews. But here's what it comes down to. If we obey God, we will live. Or if we disobey or sin against God, we will be separated from him and we shall perish. Remember we talked about what John 3.16 said. What, was the, what, was the, what were the two options or alternatives there? It was either um, to perish or to have everlasting life. So take a look at Deuteronomy 5.33. Let's go back and see if there's something in the Jewish Testament that talks about what happens or what's the connection between commandments and living. So if we look at Deuteronomy 5.33, it says, You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. So the connection here is walking in the ways which the Lord has, and here's the key word, commanded you, and there's a comma there, that you may live. In other words, in order that you may live, and that it may be well with you. So now there's a linkage in the concept of eternal life may have something to do with obeying God. Well, let's take a look at another verse in the Jewish Testament, Ezekiel 18, verse 20. And there it says very plainly, the soul who sins shall die. Okay? 
So the connection is disobey and we perish. So eternal life per the scriptures uh, consists of knowing God and his son relationally and to demonstrate the authenticity of our new found relationship. We have to demonstrate the authenticity, the, the, the reality of whether there really is a relationship of trust, of dependence, by obeying God's commands. So, oftentimes, people get nervous when you start talking in that way. I actually had my cousin who was a new born-again believer, and he said, he said, Earl, you're preaching religious works. And I'm going, uh, I, I, I'm going to call him Steve. That's not his name, but I'll say, uh, Steve, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus only taught us one singular prayer. Um, when it says to the Father, your kingdom come, and then the next line, your will be done, was Jesus preaching um, Pharisee type of religious works based on ordinances and based on rituals and based on procedural requirements or religiosity or legal perversion of the law? I said, when you say, thy will be done, So Jesus, I asked him, does Jesus not know what the difference between dead religious works are and and the fact that obeying God is life? Anyway, he didn't have an answer for that, but just just a question, just asking. So, So let me read this again. This is out of a book that I recently finished. It's called Homecoming. Um, how the mystery of the new covenant brings both Jew and Gentile back to Abba Father. And I'm reading from page 45, and the conclusion on page 45 is, says as, as follows. So eternal life, per the scriptures, is to know God. Know, not mentally know, but relationally heartfelt know. Uh, is to know God and his son relationally, and to demonstrate the authenticity of that relationship by obeying his commands. So that's uh, out of John twelve fifty. All right, so let's move on. Now, it says that if I know God relationally, um, then I have eternal life. But then there's another question that comes up that's asked in the letters that uh, John the Apostle wrote. And my ministry is called Simple Truth Ministries. I like to keep things simple. And so if somebody says, how do I remember that um, what's a way that I know that I can know? How can I know that I know God? And I said, can you say one, two, three, four? Sure, I can say one, two, three, four. Okay. Well, when you say one, two, three, four, I said, this is going to explain to you how you know that you know God and therefore um, you relationally know him so that you can say, I, I have eternal life. And so let me read it to you. It's one, two, three, four. So it's first John, that's where the one is. Chapter two, that's where the two is. And then it's verses three through four. So first John two, verses three through four. Now I'll read this to you. Now by this we know that we know him. Comma. If we keep his commands. 
That's how we know that we know him. According to this, <laughs> according to 1 John 2, verse 3, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commands. All right. Next line. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. So I think it would be fair to say that based on these verses, we see that the ultimate issue that confronts us as people of faith is not so much where we go, but rather whom we know. I'll say that again. Based on these verses, we see that the ultimate issue that confronts us as people of faith as to eternal life, that's the goal. It's not so much where we go, but rather whom we know. So the conclusion, the takeaway is that eternal life is really more of a who issue than it is a where we go issue. The next question I would ask the inmates in jail is, if eternal life is an ongoing relationship of trust, dependence, and obedience, when can I have or experience eternal life? In other words, when I was in Catholic parochial school, I was taught that eternal life is not only relocational, but it was a future event. It was something that was going to happen, not now, not in the present moment, but in the future. And I've taught the same thing as a Protestant. But if we go back to the actual definitions of eternal life, relationally knowing God, the question becomes, if relationally knowing God is eternal life, when can I begin to experience eternal life? It's a when question now. When can I begin to experience eternal life? Well, if it involves developing a relationship with Father God and the Son whom he sent, as we saw in John seventeen three, your con- most people will conclude, I can have that in the present moment. I, I can have that now. I can begin the process now. Yes, you can. And not only can you begin the process now, but you have your hand, if you will. You control how much of eternal life you can have in the present moment. Let me give you an example. One of the earlier verses we covered was John 10.10. And Jesus himself is explaining I have come that they may have life, you may have life, and have it more abundantly. In other words, so there's something that's uh, variable, and it can change to from quantities 
of being a little to more. And to have something more abundantly is to increase it, to participate in its growth. And if relationally knowing God is the definition of eternal life and a relationship can be a reality in the present moment, then who has control over how much eternal life is infilling you? I think the answer is pretty clear that you know I'm looking I'm looking right now at a at a uh, about a one-third filled uh, little water bottle that I have here in the studio and there's a twist top to it and um, if I wanted to go out and fill that bottle up I could go to the water faucet um, or the drinking fountain or and I can fill that bottle up I can take an affirmative step and say, I want more of this quantity. And what's interesting is, ultimately, the amount of, of eternal life that I can experience in the present moment is dependent on me, who my hand is on the spigot of the faucet. My hand is on the lid of the, or the cap of the water bottle. And I at any time can put that lid back on and say, you know what? I can't take any more of this right now because I'm, I'm, I'm on overload. So I'm going to let the enemy distract me or uh, give me alternative things to think about that aren't focused on my relationship with God of you know the quality and the and the authenticity of the relationship so there's lots of things that can come into play as to whether I'm in a growth pattern um or I'm in a reduction pattern as far as having life as Jesus put it more abundantly okay so i want to talk a little bit where did this um, notion that e- heaven really becomes the goal as a location. And by the way, I'm not anti-heaven. I, I mean, lots, some people who hear this teaching things, what do you have against heaven? Absolutely nothing. I'm going to just be clear. When I die, I want to go to heaven, okay? Um, but here's my, here's my challenge. The challenge is, is that I haven't found a single verse in the Bible anywhere where it says the purpose for which Jesus came, the reason for which Jesus came is for that when I die, I get to go to a place called heaven. It doesn't say that. And I've looked. And it doesn't say it in the, in the, in the Old Testament. It doesn't say it in the New Testament. But the, the reason Jesus came was that I might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, so where did this idea come of this overemphasis on relocation as opposed to relation. And I think it comes from what we call Gnostic thinking. The Gnostics um, were um, 
a group which basically taught in the Gentile world um, right around the time of the Diaspora um, that it was Greek thinking, Greek-influenced, um, and it basically said that going into the ethos world, going into the, uh, the world of uh, the sweet by and by, as we call it, is actually um, more important for the perfection of the individual. And um, the belief system was there was this second string level of gods called the demurge. And they were the ones as defective gods who created earth. And if defective gods called the demurge created earth, then that must mean earth is also defective. And so the idea was get away from a, defe- get away from a defective earth, drop your human body, and just go up to the ethos and stay there forever. But here's the problem, and we will discuss this later in more detail. When God created the earth, his opinion of it, at the end of Genesis chapter 1, then when he looked at man and he looked at earth, he said, this is not just good, it's very good. That's what he thought about the earthly creation and mankind being part of that. It's the opposite of Gnostic thinking. So here's a question for you. How did we begin to think that heaven is the goal of our Christian walk? Until next time, God bless you, and we will see you next week on Simple Truth Moments. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise.